Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Ian Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host as always. We are having another week where we're going to uh, shelve our usual format of uh, having a question of the week and a weekly pick um, as elements of our show and just focus again on earnings. This, last week we did Apple's earnings. This week we're going to do something of a roundup of some other companies' earnings. Um, we'll do our news roundup at the beginning, just briefly cover... Microsoft and Amazon's earnings, and then we'll also talk about some of the numbers that have come out recently from two of the major cable companies, Time Warner Cable and Comcast, as far as their video subscriber growth. I'm already seeing some commentary about, does this mean cord cutting isn't happening? Um, so we'll cover that as well. And then uh, our two main topics of discussion, we'll, we'll spend quite a bit of time, I think, on Alphabet or Google's earnings, um, as well as Facebook's earnings, and kind of talk about what we've learned from those. And then towards the end, we'll spend a few minutes talking about Yahoo's earnings as well and what those signify. So news roundup followed by Alphabet and Facebook, and then wrapping up with Yahoo. That's, that's the uh, schedule for today. So let's start out with the uh, news roundup and uh, Microsoft and Amazon's earnings. And this was a funny one, and I, it's always one of my least favorite things about earnings season when two of the biggest companies that I cover release their earnings at essentially exactly the same time. Uh, but that's what Microsoft and Amazon have done now several quarters in a row, and, and they did it again this time around. Uh, but it was striking to me because Microsoft's earnings were on paper pretty mediocre. You know, a lot of the same trends that we've seen there over the last little while revenue decline, profits being squeezed. Um, you know, things like uh, Windows Phone in pretty significant decline at this point. Uh, some, some good stuff on the cloud side, but, you know, office consumer revenue is going down and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, Amazon uh, announced what really are pretty stellar results in terms of growth, in terms of, you know, better profitability and so on. But if you look at what happened to the stock price, Microsoft stock price went up. Amazon's got completely hammered. Um, and it's just a wonderful illustration of it's all about expectations and, and uh, guidance and, and analyst estimates and so on, rather than true underlying performance. It was a great kind of illustration of that principle. Did you have any thoughts about those two, Aaron? No, I, I think expectations are king when it comes to valuations. And, uh, and a, I mean, I was surprised, actually, that Amazon hadn't grown more aggressively during the holiday quarter, only because they are owning the online retail space. I mean, like, there's nobody else coming even close. And, and when Amazon is now at a place where it's about growing the number of people buying stuff online generally versus them trying to sort of take over the, you know, the space owned by other competitors, it's interesting because retail seems to not be dying off nearly as quickly as people predicted even just a couple of years ago. And, and I think that's, and so, you know, for example, I think it's really fascinating that there's now a rumor floating around that Amazon's going to be rolling out bookstores nationwide. Um, yeah. Because it seems like retail is sort of making a comeback and, and, uh, and that's going to really complicate things as far as Amazon's relationship with its investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very different business model for sure. And they've opened one bookstore already as a sort of test. And, and the rumor this week came from uh, a CEO of a mall operating company on, on their earnings, I guess. And they haven't really provided any more detail about where that information came from. And Amazon sort of pushed back on it through back channels as well. So it's been an interesting story. But their growth year on year in, in North America was actually really significant. Um, like other companies that we'll talk about and Apple we talked about last week, there was a huge currency impact for international revenues, which, which meant those didn't grow as much uh, on paper as they did in reality, as it were, in, in local currencies. But, um, you know, they, they had pretty stellar growth, and, and there's certainly some good numbers out there that suggest that Amazon, Amazon essentially sucked all the growth out of the 
e-commerce market for the year. A lot of other companies, uh, especially in the electronics space, really struggled to grow um, during the same time. So kind of interesting to see um, that trend sort of taking hold. Um, you know, both companies obviously having a big cloud business as well. It's interesting to see what's happening to those revenues. Amazon breaks it out very explicitly now, both in terms of revenue and margin. Microsoft provides some sort of weaselly numbers around run rate, which is always a bit tricky to, to really work with, and they don't provide anything around margins. Um, but again, big, big uh, factor in both companies' earnings as well. Well, let's move on to the second news roundup topic, and that's um, Time Warner Cable, uh, I think last week, and Comcast this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, uh, reporting their results. And, and among those results was uh, new data, obviously, about their video subscribers. And at Time Warner Cable, they reported that they'd actually had positive growth over the past year, so the last four quarters combined. At Comcast, they had their best uh, growth in video subscribers for some time as well. And so I'm already seeing a fairly sort of predictable response in terms of, oh, is cord cutting really real? Maybe we are overthinking this. Maybe it's not really happening. Um, and it's, it's funny to, to watch this, because when you really dig into the numbers uh, over the last few quarters, and we've talked about this before, it really is happening. Um, but there's some interesting sort of reasons why uh, you, you can't kind of take those numbers at face value. Yeah, I do think. Um uh, the fact that that uh, Time Warner had net ads for the year was, I think, the part that was most surprising to me. I, I mean, I can see why people. I mean, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. That there's some seasonality to this, and I'll let you explain the reasons why. But, but uh, you know, I could see why Comcast would get ahead on its ads for a quarter. But I guess it's surprising that Time Warner had positive numbers for the year at all, although they weren't huge. But it reverses a trend, which is a multi-year trend. In fact, uh, let's see, I can't remember how many years, but it's it's a multiple-year trend of declines. And in fact, the last six, it looks like. And so the fact that they had net ads for the year I, is surprising to me. I think that just sort of goes to the fact that the web still has a long ways to go before it can really completely replace cable. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for this, and part part of it's cyclical, as you say. That obviously doesn't answer the question about Time Warner Cable. What's interesting at Time Warner Cable is, and I think the best way to look at these ads is not quarterly ads because because of the cyclicality, but year-on-year -year ads. Um, and if you look at the trend for Time Warner Cable, they've imp improved their year-on-year -year ads every quarter since at least the fourth quarter of 2013. So uh, in that quarter, they had over 750,000 disconnects. Um, and every quarter since then, that number's improved and it's shrunk uh, in terms of losses. Uh, in Q3, it was under 100,000 losses. And in Q4 now, year on year, it's just above zero. So, so positive uh, net ads for the first time in ages on a year on year basis. But it's a long term trend at Time Warner Cable. And they've really, you know, they've struggled uh, over the last few years. They've got a terrible reputation, as most of the cable companies do, for customer service. But they've really started to turn some things around. Uh, and that's helped them, and they've really made big improvements. And uh, as such, you know, I've seen more positive trends. Um, there is a cyclicality, so I think you don't want to read too much into the Comcast numbers either, because different quarters have different features as far as the quarterly net ads go, and so you do have to look over a full year period. 
Um, but the other interesting thing is that um, you know you've got to look at the whole market. And yes, the cable companies dominate pay TV, but you've got the satellite providers and you've got the telecoms providers as well, like AT and T and Verizon, which offer TV services in their franchise areas as well. Uh, and what's happened over the last couple of quarters is that, that those telcos have really de-emphasized selling their TV services. So Verizon's really kind of soft pedaled it. They've had some issues around marketing uh, because of a legal dispute they're having with ESPN, among others. Uh, AT&T has really uh, toned down their marketing for their uh, telecom-based uh, TV service as well because they just bought DirecTV, and that's really where their focus is as far as trying to drive net ads. And so as the telcos kind of de-emphasize and then stop growing quite so much, there's more share of the net ads available, uh, or at least the gross ads available for the cable companies to capture. So that's a big part of it too. And then the third thing is that um, skinny bundles, so these, these smaller packages of channels that are cheaper and have fewer channels than the traditional big bundles are becoming a bigger thing at these cable companies. And so in some cases where they would have seen disconnects in the past, they're now just seeing people moving down to a smaller bundle at a lower price. Um, and you know the companies don't report that explicitly, so it just looks like net ads are really healthy. But it's a big factor in both retention as well as uh, gaining new subscribers. Some of those new subscribers will be coming onto these skinny bundles, and I think Comcast said about a quarter of their new subscribers in the quarter were on skinny bundles. So, you know, yes, you're not seeing perhaps quite as much cord cutting at the moment. That's partly because you're seeing what they call cord shaving instead, where people are cutting down the size of the bundle. Um, obviously, that means lower revenue per user. Uh, for the cable companies, but more importantly, it also means lower numbers of subscribers for some of the big content owners like ESPN. Uh, and this has been one of the big worries. You know, even if cord cutting doesn't happen in big numbers, if people start moving to skinnier bundles uh, that don't include, you know, the ESPN channels, for example, then that could really hurt them as well. So, interesting to kind of watch all of those trends. Well, let's move on to our main topic for today, which is to kind of cover the uh, Alphabet or Google earnings. Obviously, Google now has this new parent company called Alphabet. So uh, this was the first quarter where Alphabet reported in its new reporting structure where there's a Google segment and then there's an other bets segment, which is sort of a pun uh, in some ways on the Alphabet name, but also representative of the fact that the other things they're doing are all in the nature of bets. They are money put down now in the hope that something will of it eventually. And uh, so we've, we got our first visibility over some of those numbers this quarter. Um, and they're very interesting. That It's a set of businesses that includes Nest and Google Fiber and what's now called Verily, which is Google's life sciences business. Those are the three that really generate revenue today, uh, but very little revenue, so less than half a billion dollars um, over the course of the past year. Uh, and meanwhile, the losses were in the $3.6 billion range. So, um, you know, the, the margins, I have charts for margins, and I was trying to compare you know, the Google margins, which are around 30% operating margins, with these other bets, and it just doesn't fit on the same chart because you've got, you know, 30% positive margins on the one hand and, you know, several hundred percent negative margins on the other. So, really interesting to, to get the visibility. Was there anything that kind of stood out to you from, from looking at those numbers this week? Uh, I think. Uh the, the the just the massiveness of the capital expenditure that Google's put into these other bets is is striking. I realize a lot of that went into Google Fiber, which for obvious reasons would have a huge capital requirement. But um, but that's I mean it's it's so much money that's getting sunk into these these other bets. Uh, it's cool to be able to see it now, which we haven't been able to up to this point. 
I guess cool, and but the better word is fascinating. If mm-hmm. you're a Google investor, you may not be as enthusiastic about that part <laughs> of their business. But it's, yeah. it's just so much money. Yeah, it is a truckload of money. I mean, I, I did a post on the Beyond Devices blog this week, which we'll link to in the show notes, but just looking through some of these numbers, the revenue, the profitability, the capex, and, and a few other things, and made some observations there. But, you know, it's enormously loss-making, and chances are... A lot of the losses are coming in businesses that don't generate any revenue today, things like self-driving cars, for example, um, where you know they're making huge investments that aren't going to pay off for years to come. Um, and you know they, it really is in the nature of a bet. It's, it's gambling of a sort. You know, it's, it's not pure chance, obviously. You know, there's you know, good work being done by Google around self-driving cars in particular. Um, but you know the the payoff is several years down the line, and it's not yet clear exactly how the investments made today will be paid back and when. And those losses are actually increasing over time. Um, there's some evidence that perhaps Ruth Porat, the new CFO um, at Alphabet and Google, um, has started to stem some of those losses and, and start to turn things around. It's too early to really know about that, but that, there's evidence of that. Um, but you know, they're massive losses, and they've been growing over time. And uh, you know, you only have to go back a few years, and the scale of these losses is about the same size as Google's entire operating profit. Um, and so, you know, it's really very significant. And yet, you know, to my mind, one of the biggest reasons for separating out the two parts of the company in this way was to show just how well the core Google business is doing. And of course, you strip out the other bets and suddenly operating margin for the core Google business, you know, increases by several percentage points and looks significantly healthier than it was looking. Um, so it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast the two. Uh, and clearly investors like what they're seeing in the core Google business. You know, that's profitable, that was growing pretty rapidly. And they don't mind these other investments. But I, I wonder if over time, if, if these losses continue to grow, if some of the investors will say, hang on a second, you know, we need to scale this back and keep it in proper proportion to the kind of core Google business. It's interesting to look at these other bets um, as, as it relates to revenue that they're bringing in. When you consider what they were like before Google moved into it or acquired versus after. I mean, Nest, I think, is a fascinating one to me because this is a business that... You know, it was obviously very niche and small before Google acquired it. I mean, I you know, there are a lot of thermostats in the world, but not that many, right? And there right. just aren't that many people, like, up to this point willing to spend $250 on a thermostat. Um, but this, at the same time, is a company that didn't have huge startup costs, I mean, relative to the hardware space they're moving into. Google acquired them for $3.2 billion. And uh, this is a company that, you know, was that they purchased already in a revenue generating mode. Um, and clearly Google doesn't seem to care about that part right now. Like, like, like they treated Nest, even though Nest is already selling products at the time of acquisition, they have treated Nest clearly as a bet on the future rather than simply acquiring a revenue generating business today. Um, because you know they're obviously making a play on the connected home, on smart homes, and that's how they see the future of Nest. And, uh, and so even though it's making money right now, they see it as a very, very, very long-term play, I think. The same could be said for fiber. I think fiber, as far as its capital expenditure requirements versus revenue, is not surprising because Google's essentially entering the same really capital-intensive business that Comcast and Time Warner are in. 
And if you, I mean, we talked about this already before. Part of the reason mm-hmm. that Comcast and Time Warner get such horrible customer service ratings is because they're constantly trying to squeeze every last dime they can out of their customers. And the reason they're squeezing every last dime out that they can is because they have these massive infrastructures, you know, these these huge, huge capital assets they have to right. keep up to date. And Google's moving into that space with Google Fiber. Mm-hmm. The, there are some reasons they'll be more efficient at it, but not any that really, I think give them a huge advantage right and so that one is not so surprising but it's interesting because even when they're you know doing stuff that has revenue revenue generation capability immediately they don't seem to feel a whole lot of urgency about turning any of these companies into profitable ones right now Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely no I, i agree um one of the other things that's interesting to think about is is Facebook, and obviously both these companies are primarily ad companies. You know, ninety plus percent of their revenue comes from ads. Um, you know, Google that percentage is decreasing slightly over time. At Facebook, it's actually been increasing because the other things they do have been actually shrinking. Um, but uh, they're both you know ad centric companies, and yet both companies that have made significant investments, both in terms of acquisitions and then organically, in other stuff that's not necessarily ad centric. So, you know, Facebook, Oculus, um, and WhatsApp are two acquisitions they've made for lots of money over the last little while. Uh, neither of which seems to have advertising at the core of its business model. Obviously, Oculus doesn't have that at all. Uh, and WhatsApp, you know, the, the founders have been very clear that they never wanted to have advertising in the product, and that isn't going to be the way that that's monetized either. So there you've got two companies, neither of which is generating revenue yet, uh, and yet uh, you know, there's lots of R&D spend in Oculus in particular. WhatsApp's run pretty efficiently. Um, but still, you know, obviously costs money to run and yet isn't really generating any revenue and just eliminated its only source of revenue. Um, and then, of course, at Google, you've got these other bets, which, which are very much of the same nature, where there are bets on other business models, other technologies, in some cases, big acquisitions that have got them into these businesses and, uh, you know, which seem very separate from the ad business. And so it's interesting to think about, you know, why are these companies doing this, especially when, you know, I mean, Facebook's numbers this week were, were spectacular again, you know, on, on the mobile side in particular, you know, the growth continues to be astonishing. But things like Instagram that are driving additional revenue growth on the advertising side. So lots of positive trends, no obvious kind of short-term reasons for them to be trying to diversify. And yet both these companies clearly feel the need to do so. Yeah, that's what's. this is the strangest part to me about what's happening as far as investors and their perception of Facebook and Google. Because both companies saw huge bumps in their stock price this week because of their earnings reports and, and it was and, and, and their all the growth happened on the advertising side. Like that's where they showed really robust, healthy businesses, and investors responded in kind, and 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 the stock prices ticked up by a lot. In fact, it's been all over the internet that Google, you know, in overnight trading, passed Apple's market cap, and a whole bunch of people started writing articles about that. But um, but the point is, is that. You know, all the money that's making investors happy, all the revenue that's making investors happier, and has to do with ads. And that seems to be not at all where, where Facebook and Google are directing their attention in terms of growth. Um, I, I mean, it's not like they're leaving these ad businesses off to die, but all their attention and energy and their prediction about the stuff that's going to matter in the future is on these side bets. And that's weird, right? Because the stock price is supposed to reflect future earnings, not current earnings. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so clearly investors are thinking that Google and Facebook's ad businesses are going to continue to grow and be healthy and strong. But yet, if you look at the attention of management as being drawn, and, and especially capital expenditures, all the attention is being drawn over to these other things that don't have anything to do with ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at Google, I think that R&D is sort of split between, you know, driving the existing business and investments in AI and things like that versus, you know, some of these new bets. But both companies certainly spending very heavily on R&D in areas that aren't going to generate revenue for some time and are not advertising related. And, you know, I think there's a recognition that, you know, there's only so much advertising spending in the world. And even though the trends are very positive right now because online's capturing a greater share because these two companies are investing more in mobile and mobile's capturing a greater share of online advertising, but there's a ceiling to that. There's only so many ad dollars to go around and at some point you're going to bump up against that ceiling. And at that point, what are you going to do You know, if that's your only business model? And so I think they're very much looking to diversify beyond just advertising while also you know, continuing to build up the ad-based businesses that they have. The question is just kind of how do they monetize those things over time? And the answers are very different for A, different businesses at Google, but also between Google and Facebook. So with Facebook, Oculus obviously is primarily kind of a hardware play. It's very new for them. They haven't really had any hardware in the past at all. Um, and so that's a totally new business model for them. You know, one that, as we've talked about before, can be very tough unless you're really differentiated and, and are able to target sort of premium segments. Um, and on the other hand, with WhatsApp driving uh, more revenue from the business side, but not necessarily ad revenue. So other ways for businesses to reach their customers and communicate with customers and things like that. You know, Google... There's a whole variety of new business models. You know, self-driving cars. Um, there's going to be a licensing aspect to that potentially for the technology. Uh, there's talk about Google eventually kind of running an Uber-like sort of transportation service using these self-driving cars. And there's questions about you know how much of that they do themselves versus partnering with others to do it. Uh, with life sciences, it's about partnering with big uh, pharmaceutical companies and others to to sort of monetize investments made there. Um, you know, Google Fibers and infrastructure businesses we've talked about already. So a lot of really different business models, none of which these companies really have any experience in, uh, and each of which are pretty challenging in their own right and, and don't necessarily have great margins either historically. And so very interesting to see how these companies do eventually migrate to these new business models, whether they're able to achieve anything like the same margins they have in the past around advertising. But I think it's very sensible for both of them to be investing in things beyond advertising for a whole variety of reasons and you know whether it's just the ceiling they'll inevitably hit whether it's things like ad blocking increasing on the web um, that could affect google's business significantly if it really does take off and and so on and so forth yeah a couple thoughts about that one you know it's true that it's smart for them to both be diversifying outside of advertising because we've seen how quickly the sand can shift from under the feet of the company selling ads and, uh, and there's no reason to think that, it, you know, people will always go to Google search or to Facebook to get these ad impressions. That said, the actual investments they make are different, right? I mean, it's smart to diversify, but that assumes that you're making good bets in your diversification. And what's interesting, what's fascinating to me about this is how personality driven so many of these big bets can be for companies like Facebook and Google. I, I mean, you know, the truth is there are you know, the, the founders who are running these companies, um, they are 
very much futurists. Like they see themselves as shaping the future of the world, and and so it's their vision that ends up guiding these either acquisitions or these new areas of research. And you know, if you look at at uh, what Alphabet's doing when it comes to self-driving cars, life sciences, like. It's essentially articulating a vision of the future that you would find up at the very top, right? With uh, with Larry and Sergey, and the same on the Facebook side. You know, I think you're seeing a personality-driven approach to what they think the future should be like. Um, it, it, these are these are business cases that are writing themselves right now, right? This is these are going to be business cases that students are going to study 20 years from now, where they're going to look at businesses that have you know, essentially the corporate equivalent of a trust fund, right? right. This is sort mm-hmm. of like money that comes in kind of no matter what you do and what you do with that in terms of, you know, how you build yourself, how you shape yourself going into the future. And the question is whether or not too much money will be a good or bad thing. I think another interesting question is, is uh, you know, how well somebody who built a business doing one thing can predict a few, predict the future and another thing. Um, it, it, you know, 10, years, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this and there will be some big key lessons that people are going to take away. And, and, you know, it's true. There aren't that many Facebooks or Googles, historically speaking, companies that grew so fast and that produced so much revenue, you know, on such a sing- singular business like ads. Right. Um, but at the same time with the Internet, these sorts of big hits, these sorts of companies that grow rapidly, you know, taking over one big thing like search, you know, or social media, um, those sorts of things I think are going to happen more often in the future. And there will be lessons to learn for founders of the future when they have built their big company that's generating a ton of cash and they're trying to decide what to do next. I think we're going to look at Google and Facebook and, and learn some interesting lessons about where to go next. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed on that. Um, so before we started recording, we had a conversation briefly about something else relating to these two companies and, and potentially pulling in others as well. And this is around active user numbers. And so um, Google, uh, rather Alphabet, on its earnings call talked about um, some of the products that it has with a billion users. And it's talked about most of those before. The new one this time around was Gmail that's crossed the billion monthly active user mark. Um, and right afterwards, Facebook announced uh, a billion users around WhatsApp as well. And so here you have two businesses that report these active user numbers, but they're quite different. So A, Google doesn't report them regularly. It kind of reports milestones and, and talks about most of these things as having passed a billion users at this point. But it's monthly active users. And then you've got Facebook, which reports very precise numbers on a quarterly basis, uh, very predictable fashion around not just monthly active users, but mobile monthly active users, daily active users, mobile daily active users, mobile only active users, and so on and so forth. So a whole range of figures. But with Facebook, there's a lot of emphasis on the daily active user numbers. And, and Aaron, I know that that's something that you wanted to talk about. Well, yeah, and it wasn't me who first thought of it. Mark Miller, who I follow on Twitter, had a great insight, and I know he's not the only one who thought who pointed this out. But when it comes to mobile in particular, the monthly active user measure is not especially helpful. I mean, to have a to have an internet property that somebody checks on their phone once a month is a really loose measure of value for the company when it comes to customer acquisition. I mean, that's you know that's that is a a monthly check in from your phone. Um, doesn't seem to add a lot of value to the core business. I think Gmail is an interesting example of this. A whole bunch of people have Gmail accounts that they 
that they check literally once a month. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're barely scraping by to meet that monthly active user measure because they set up a Gmail account to be, um, you know, essentially a spam account, the kind of the web, the account that they use to sign up for random website, you know, for, for random websites. And, and, um, I think this is a really important insight. I think when it comes to mobile, the measures that really, get into the quality of a business are going to be measured at the very least on a weekly basis, but probably better measured on a daily basis. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And and what's interesting at Facebook is because you've got both the daily active user number and the monthly active user number, you can see kind of what percentage of the monthly active users are also daily active users. In other words, of the user base that they have on a monthly basis, how many of them are engaged enough to be there daily? And the good news for Facebook is that number's going up over time. And I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's about 65% of its monthly active users are daily active users. But the other thing that's interesting is that engagement rate is very different by region. So in Asia, it's under 50%, I think, while in North America and Western Europe, for example, it's quite a bit higher than that. Um, and so, you know, it's a good measure of how engaged those users are as well as, um, you know, just how many of those users they may be at any given point in time. Um, but yeah, in, in other words, your, your ability to monetize those users is also heavily driven by how many of them are active daily. You know, if somebody visits once a month, your, the number of ads you can show them are far fewer than if they're visiting every day. And so it kind of goes to the sort of monetization aspect of it as well. Um, and of course, it's interesting in the context of thinking about user bases and how powerful these platforms and ecosystems have become. You know, Google has now several products over a billion users. Facebook's well over one and a half billion users on a monthly active user basis. Apple, in its earnings call last week, just talked about a billion active devices. That's not a billion unique users because a lot of people will have multiple devices, but still uh, interesting to see them getting into that billion range now too and under their own measure. But um, you know, these companies have very significant bases. And when you have a base of that size that allows you to do all kinds of things uh, that you can't do when you're just a little tiny company, and I keep thinking about Twitter in this context, because Twitter only reports monthly active users. And there was a story on the information today with lots of great information about Twitter user numbers. Um, but one of the things it said was, A, they're kind of hitting up against the ceiling as far as ad load, uh, so especially in the US, so they, they just can't show any more ads to the users they have. But there's also some crazy number about the percentage of users in the US uh, who basically don't engage enough with the service on a monthly basis to see any advertising, uh, and yet are counted as monthly active users. Uh, and some of those would be people like me who use third-party clients exclusively and therefore never see an ad because we just don't see twitter.com or one of the official Twitter ads. But a lot of those will be bots. They'll be um, you know, automated accounts. There'll be others that... Um, just don't log on frequently enough to see any of the ads. And so that's really worrying for Twitter is that A, their users aren't engaging enough, B, they're kind of maxing out on how many ads they can show them, um, and C, you know, the user growth is, is basically stuck. And so, you know, what is your lever for growth at that point when you, when you can't get users to engage more, when you can't show them any more ads, you know, that really starts to being quite worrying. Well, in the case of Twitter, this is especially distressing because they raise so much capital to get going, right? I mean, I, I think one of the best purchases Facebook made was Instagram because, relatively speaking, Instagram got off the ground very cheaply. And so there's room for Facebook to earn, get money off of that investment in Instagram simply because, um, you know, Instagram didn't have a whole bunch of investors clamoring for uh 
clamoring for revenue, whereas Twitter, that's very much the case. And and uh, having overraised essentially get to, to get to the point where they are now means the pressure to get ad revenue going is really big. I, I do want to say one other thing about this billion monthly active users thing is is the business model matters immensely too if monthly active users is meaningful. I mean, this is sort of implied in all of your comments just now, but a monthly active user is not nearly as important to you if if uh, your revenue model is advertising, right? I mean, if this person is just checking in once a month, you're not getting that very many ad impressions out of that user. Apple's case with a billion active devices is, is a more interesting one. And we talked last week how they made such a big deal out of services. You know, for Apple to have somebody who's connected on a monthly basis means, for example, that they may be paying for an Apple Music subscription, that they may be paying for extra iCloud storage, right? There, there are different ways where Apple is going to be making money off of these billion devices than the way Google is making money off of its Gmail accounts. And, uh, and so I think as we start to figure out how this monthly active user metric is meaningful down the road is going to have everything to do with the business models that uh, companies are using to take advantage of these massive user bases. Yeah, that goes back to the point just now about these other bets and, and Oculus and so on. To what extent can these companies leverage the user bases that they have into these new areas? You know, right. um, in the case of Google, it's not very helpful when it comes to Google Fiber, other than a certain amount of brand awareness, um, because just having a Gmail account doesn't mean you have access to Google Fiber. Uh, Self-driving cars, yes, they generate tons of data from mapping, so it's useful there. So it really depends on the business. Oculus, you know, Facebook owning Oculus and having a massive user base doesn't really help there either. Um, but that's an investment in the future of interfaces and so on, which eventually may help the kind of core Facebook experience as well. But it's very interesting to think about the interplay between all of these things. Um, I, I think this whole discussion is kind of a useful segue into our last topic, which was talking about Yahoo's earnings. Um, you know, Yahoo talked about having a billion users in their earnings release this week. and. Um, that's a number they've banded around a fair amount. And it's one of the most fascinating things about Yahoo is it has this base of users, especially on desktop sites and so on, that's enormous. You know, in the US, it's over 200 million a month, uh, according to Comscore. So it's one of about five companies that has, uh, you know, a majority of the US online audience visiting it in a given month, uh, you know, along with Google, Microsoft, Facebook. Uh, and AOL, another one of those brands that feels more like it belongs to yesterday's internet than today's, but you know, it isn't able to monetize that anywhere near as well as some of these other companies have. And so you had you know, earnings that were somewhat predictable from Yahoo, but obviously company somewhat in crisis at this point as it tries to figure out what the next step is. It's cutting 15% of its workforce. It's going to be canceling certain products. Um, we're going to be refocusing around certain others and is basically saying that it's up for sale now as well and, and looking for a buyer. So really interesting kind of uh, place for them to be. But obviously, this is another advertising business, um, like the two that we've just been talking about, but in a very different state, very different rate of growth. Um, again, big audience, but just hasn't been able to monetize that audience as well. Yeah, I think what's different, right, about... Yahoo versus Facebook or Google is that Facebook and Google are masters of their space. I mean, Google and search and Facebook and social media. Yahoo as a company is very much a jack of all trades. Some of it has to do with legacy, like, you know, businesses like search. Uh, some of it is where they've actually done a good job growing a competitive uh, advantage in, for example, fantasy sports. But what's interesting about Yahoo is they don't have one big key sort of we are the master of this space 
business the way that Google and Facebook have. And as a jack of all trades, I am doubtful that Yahoo has a very strong future. The, the web, more than it's ever been, is a winner-takes-all um, marketplace. I mean, the, be, because the barriers you know, to entry don't have anything to do with geography anymore. Um, or any other kind of limitations and so like that. And so it very much creates a winner-takes-all environment. And the truth is right now, Yahoo is not the winner in any of its individual businesses, not any big ones anyway. And it's, it's questionable whether or not Yahoo has a future that way, right? I mean, as a company, can you be, a, as a web-based company, can you be a jack-of-all-trades and have a viable business in the long run? I'm not sure you can because in any of your running businesses, you know, you're going to be facing competition where their focus means they can take it over. And, and, uh, and this jack-of-all-trades approach, it, which, by the way, has also been reflected in the way Marissa Myers run the company, right? It seems like she's just making a lot of bets in a lot of different areas. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that is a, a path to eventual and permanent decline. Yeah, that's only been the case so far. And there is this question of whether it's... It, and I, I felt this way at the time that she took the job, that it was something of a poison chalice. You know, that, that there really was no way to turn Yahoo around back when she took it over um, because of all these things that we've been talking about. And, you know, the other half of the jack-of-all-trades phrase is, is master of none, right? And so, you know, the very definition of a jack-of-all-trades is somebody who does a little bit of everything but isn't particularly good at any one thing. And, and this is the problem with Yahoo. Is like I struggle to think of a single Yahoo product that if you shut it down tomorrow, there wouldn't be some perfectly viable alternative for people to jump to. Um, and that's the problem. You know, you've got lots of Me Too products that are very much the same as what other people are doing. The only way to really advertise through them is traditional display advertising, which we all know has been in, in decline for some time now in terms of uh, both, you know, absolute growth, but especially in terms of uh, what people are willing to pay for ads on those sites that are relatively untargeted, pretty uh, obnoxious a lot of the time, and, and generally unwanted and easily blocked now by ad blockers. And so. You know, real challenges around the business model, real challenges around the products. And for all that Marissa Meyer spent over the last several years, both on organic investment in things and, and making acquisitions, there's no product that's come out of Yahoo since she took over in 2012 that you think that is really solid. That's you know a great reason for somebody to either come back to Yahoo or to spend more time with Yahoo. And, and so I really feel like the money and the time over the last three and a half years has been wasted on a lot of projects that really didn't move the needle. I'm not sure there was a lot that could have been done. I think some of the products probably should have been killed a lot sooner. I think other ones should have been invested in much more heavily. And I think Yahoo probably should have been making more strategic investments in terms of apps that could have added to the kind of Yahoo Valley proposition rather than sort of the niche stuff that they have acquired. Tumblr is the one big thing, obviously, they have acquired. And, and that's a going concern. It doesn't generate a huge amount of money. Um, you know, it's a popular brand, a popular site and service. And yet I don't feel like it's really sort of redounded to the benefit of Yahoo in any broader way. You know, there's no positive association with the Yahoo brand, which, you know, feels dated. It's, it's kind of like AOL and MapQuest and a whole variety of other brands that feel like they're things that used to be part of the web but are increasingly less relevant in these days. And, and that's, that's another big challenge for Yahoo. Um, they just they feel like they're stuck in the past to a great extent. And, and the new strategy, quote unquote, that was outlined this week just feels like pretty much more of the same. Uh, and, and again, with the promise that the growth is going to come eventually. 
Yeah, it did feel like Tumblr was a, a step in the right direction. But then, you know, Yahoo puts a bunch of effort into video streaming, for example, which is a business they killed recently. And uh, and the, the, with this with this lack of focus on being the best at any one big thing, I, I think they essentially ensured that they would face eventual decline. The thing that's interesting to me about Tumblr is that it was... I mean, it was a big wager, and Tumblr was on a much better trajectory at purchase than it is now. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? That that Yahoo, when it made that purchase, you know, was projecting a future for Tumblr that wasn't going to play out. One that I don't think is terribly surprising. I mean, the you know the change to mobile, for example, didn't suit Tumblr very well as a platform. Um, mm-hmm. Because you're essentially asking people to go to web pages on mobile, and I realize Tumblr has an app, but it doesn't have the same sort of engagement that, say, Snapchat does. And Snapchat, although not a direct competitor to Tumblr in the way the two platforms work, um, they are competitors for attention for the same yeah. demographic. And th- this is the problem. If if Snapchat and Instagram and any of these other you know really rapid rise mobile app startups if there's a lesson to these for us, it's that when it comes to sort of, you know, the millennial generation or early generate young people, social media, man, the opportunity for being totally disrupted is higher than I think I, I can think of in any other business. And so if Yahoo's going to buy Tumblr and they can't get it to cross over to the old people, the way Facebook crossed over to old people, the way Instagram is now crossing over to old people, if it can't sort of build this user basis beyond younger people, which tumb- which never really happened with Tumblr, it's going to, you know, it's it's an investment that doesn't pay off. And that's, and that's kind of played out now because Yahoo just wrote down, you know, yeah, a few hundred million dollars of... Uh, of Tumblr's value. Yeah, yeah, along with impairing a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, huge amounts of impairments on acquisitions made essentially since Marissa Meyer took over. So, um, you know, not not a great vote of confidence in those other acquisitions either for that matter. It makes me sad, but I'm worried that someday we're going to think of Tumblr the way we thought of MySpace. Yeah, yes, it's quite possible. I mean, the thing is, it's not a great, you know, it's very much kind of yesterday's product in terms of advertising. You know, it's sort of, it's not WordPress. I mean, WordPress is much more fully functional. You know, I have to use Tumblr. I'm a Yahoo finance contributor, and and they use Tumblr as the back end for that. And as a CMS, it's horrible. You know, and I use WordPress for everything else that I do, and and I have to use Tumblr for that. And it's just awful. And yet, you know, Yahoo's building huge, great content properties off the back of Tumblr. And, you know, you can only imagine it's enormously frustrating for the people, you know, professionally contributing to those full time. Um, You know, they they tried to kind of stretch it across the other stuff they do, but it just isn't suited for it. Um, And at the same time, not great for an advertising product because it's basically untargeted display advertising. Um, which is sort of the worst form of advertising out there. Um, the search stuff they've invested in hasn't really panned out. The video stuff, as you pointed out, they've had to shut down a lot of that recently. So yeah, just so many bets that didn't work out for them. Um, you know, and interesting in the context of the discussion we were having earlier about you know Facebook and Alphabet being ad-centric businesses and making big bets on other things, which you know, okay, they're not paying off yet, but at least you know seem to be very interesting areas. And Yahoo's just struggle to find its focus to, to, to find you know a place to really put that money that where it's going to pay off long term and this is and one last point on this is the fact that uh, Facebook and Google like we talked about are trying to diversify away from ad revenue whereas it feels like all of Yahoo's efforts to diversify were all within ad revenue driven businesses yeah and, just doubling down and so it's it's a diversification within a category that's that you know 
in a winner takes all web like we talked about you know mm-hmm. you're fighting an uphill battle yeah absolutely Okay, well, I think we'll wrap up the discussion there, and I think that wraps up our episode for today as well. So thank you all for joining us, as always. Uh, we'll hopefully be back to our regular format next week with a, a question of the week and weekly pick and all the rest of what we normally do. Um, so we'll be with you again next week. As always, we welcome your feedback and questions uh, and comments and reviews on iTunes and so on. So uh, if you have a spare minute, then please take the time to do one of those things. We always appreciate that interaction and support as well. So. We'll be with you again next week. Thanks very much.